This episode has been brought to you by Worldwide Soba, a Japanese noodle production company. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Black culture through the complicated lens of agriculture. We speak to Carla Hall about her uncompromising soul food recipes. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I changing my family's history for another culture? We also hear from Gabriela Rodriguez at Harlem Grown's Youth Farm Uptown. About empowerment and, you know, community resilience building through this work. Um, food is kind of just a vehicle. Leah Penniman addresses feeling like an outsider in the farming community. I could count on my two hands the number of, of people who appeared to be POC, people of color. Mm-hmm. And so I literally would go around little slips of paper and, and, and say, hey, meet at one o'clock under this tree so we can talk. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's Meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, that's right. I love it when you guys like raise that music up to announce the fact that I'm about to start jabbering away here. This is your host, Katie Kieford. The program is called What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. And today we're following up with Rick Dove, who is... uh, has been part of the Waterkeeper movement since 1993. He was one of the founding members of the Waterkeeper Alliance and served on its first board of directors as the former riverkeeper for the, am I saying this right, Rick? Noosey? Is that how it's? Noose River. Noose. Noose River and one of the first riverkeepers in the Southeast. Rick assisted in the birth of many of the Waterkeeper programs in North Carolina, as well as many others across the country. He holds the honorary title of Waterkeeper Alliance Board Member Emeritus and Noose Riverkeeper Emeritus, and his work continues to to go actually Rick you pioneered uh the use of drones uh in order to more closely observe the impacts on water quality from the agriculture and uh coal ash plants in your area isn't that right weren't you well we do it from the air that? but not with drones we do it with airplanes uh, oh, in North right? Carolina it's illegal to fly a drone over a hog farm ah. uh, but that really doesn't bother us because uh, our work uh, with aircraft and good camera equipment right. uh, is every bit as good or even better than what a drone could do oh I would think so I was going to ask you about the ag gag laws in North Carolina because I know that uh, ag gag laws where you, North Carolina was one of the first uh, states to adopt ag-gag. Isn't that right? Uh, it, it, I don't know. It was not the first, but it was the first to adopt ag-gag with civil penalties as opposed to uh, criminal penalties. I mean, it's thousands right. of dollars for taking a picture of a hog farm right. without permission. Uh, you could still do it from public roads and from aircraft. Ah. But if you go and trespass on their land, uh, the consequences are pretty severe. Wow, that is that is outrageous. Well, we are we're here to follow up on the show that we did back in September with uh, Charles Bethay from the New Yorker magazine, um, talking about the aftermath of uh, the Hurricane Florence and the record level of flooding that ensued from the hurricane itself. And at the time, I was I was proposing that that basically the whole area that you are part of, the Cape Fear and Noose River, uh, river basins, were, were basically going to become a big Superfund site. What's happened? Is it a Superfund site? Well, it should be. I think um, so. But, you know, North Carolina and its government are the perfect example for doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different result. Oh, dear. Um, It's crazy what's happening in North Carolina. I wish I could say that things are getting better. 
Yeah. I mean, we've been fighting this fight for 26 years. Yeah. We've been flying the planes and taking them and five, 600,000 photographs, sharing them with the state and federal government. But it's not gotten better. It's gotten worse. And wow. as, as our conversation goes on, I'll explain how. But yeah. no, we, we haven't made any progress. We've, we've stepped backwards. Um, you know, here's the way it happens. Okay. A storm approaches and everybody gets concerned and the governor goes on TV and everybody's getting prepared. Well, certain things you can't do. You can't move millions of animals. They're going to have to stay where they are. But everybody gets real concerned. And then the storm hits and then there's this tragedy afterwards where millions of animals die and people's homes get flooded because they're in the floodplain and the animals are in the floodplain. And right after the hurricane, everybody says, well, this time we're going to do something. We're going to change all this. We're going to get them out of the floodplain. You know, and then two or three months later, it's off the radar. Yeah. It's not on the horizon. Nobody's talking about it. And all they do is patch up all the holes and put the animals back in and, and, and pollute the environment with the dead ones. I'll explain that as we go along. Yes. But nothing changes. And I'm sad to tell you that after hurricanes, Dennis, Floyd, Irene, Matthew, yeah. uh, Florence, everything is just the same, except it's getting worse. Oh, Rick, that is so discouraging. I hate to hear that. I really do. And I can hear how discouraged you are, because I know that after uh, Hurricane Matthew, you wrote an article, which I accessed online today. I think it was basically for your Waterkeeper Alliance, you know, sort of personnel. But basically, it was a very common sense solution or one common sense solution, which was to move the animals out of the floodplain. And clearly, that didn't happen before Florence. And obviously, it's not it's not clearly happening now. Um, what, what, what does the industry say? I mean, when these, well, wait, let's back up for a second. First of all, how many of those lagoons eventually breached? You, I mean, North Carolina, for people who don't know, is like the second biggest hog producer in the country. Well, that's, so, that's an interesting question. If you were to ask the industry, they would say, well, about 13 lagoons right. got flooded and two or three breached. Right. But uh, North Carolina Policy Watch, which is a... Uh, uh, a very good um, uh, internet site, and, and people for that site go out and, and really do some good research. They went and they based their findings on what the farmers themselves reported. And ah. what we know is it was, uh, according to them, 46 lagoons were flooded, discharged wastewater into the adjacent land streams, or, or sustained structural damage as a result of Hurricane Florence. Wow. That is way beyond anything the industry itself reported. Or even your DEQ, because as I recall, before I interviewed you and Charles Bethay back in September after the storm, the DEQ reported to me that only four or five lagoons had actually breached and that the flooding yeah, was And, and from my own flight, I know that 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 number is way, way low. Right. I think that what the farmers themselves reported is probably the best information. Indeed, I would think so. I mean, who knows better than they do? So, um... So let's let's talk a little bit about what the chemical findings were, because it wasn't just the hog and poultry industries that were seriously affected by Hurricane Florence. It was also those big coal ash dumps. So you you got sort of you had both the hog and uh, poultry industries were flooding uh, either the waste lagoons or the big piles of poultry litter, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, and or you had the coal ash dumps that were also uh, either breached or flooded. So what in the end, in the end, were you able to um, access water quality samples and soil quality samples to see what level of pollution actually ensued from Hurricane Florence? 
Well, we we know that a tremendous amount of hog waste went down the river, and uh, there were some samples taken. I don't have the results in front of me on mm-hmm. on waste from hog lagoons, but let me just say that many of the rivers uh, in North Carolina turned the pink color of hog lagoons as this stuff moved downstream. Ah, okay. So the waters were heavily contaminated. The state said to stay away from them altogether. There were warnings posted by the state. So there's no question that the waters were heavily polluted as a result yeah. of all the waste that came down. But this time we not only had... Um, the hog waste and the poultry waste, and we really do need to spend more time talking about poultry if we have time today. But yes, I would love but to. In addition to that, was the coal ash ponds right. that had flooded, and we've been having problems with coal ash ponds and coal ash waste, which is highly toxic. Yeah. Uh, it's a cancer-causing agent. It's got all sorts of bad stuff in it: arsenic, barium. It, it's it's right. A lot mm, of heavy metals. Yeah. Oh, heavy metals just. It's incredible what's what's in coal ash, mm-hmm. and we had the Dan River spill. That was that wasn't a result of hurricane. It just happened, and then we right. caught uh, Duke Energy illegally discharging without a permit millions of gallons of of coal ash wastewater into the Cape Fear River, right. uh, up um, up the Upper Cape uh, Fear River uh, near Clemmers, um, and then. Then we had Sutton, which has always been a problem. And then with hurricanes, the Lee plant up on the Noose River discharged coal ash in tremendous amounts, along with a horrific um, discharge out of the Sutton plant in in Wilmington. Uh-huh. Um, there were samples taken by Waterkeeper and other organizations, and they were taken right at the discharge point, and their levels were far in excess of the uh, of the norm for uh, arsenic and other dangerous chemicals. Right. Uh, but the state went in and sampled further down the river where the, the, the water was more diluted, and they came up with samples that said everything was okay. Uh-huh. What the public really needs to know is this stuff settles out into the sediments. Right. And it isn't and it's collected in the sediments and over time as the water moves downstream it continues to pick up those chemicals and move them on down. Uh-huh. So the sampling there's a conflict between the state and the environmental community. It all depends on where the samples were taken, whether they were taken out of the sediments or whether they were taken in the water column, how long after the discharge, how close to the discharge site. But clearly, you can't discharge as much coal ash as we filmed and videotaped coming out of those facilities without doing an awful lot of harm to drinking water and the river itself. Absolutely. And then we forgot to mention the other thing that happened, um, and this was also more in the Cape Fear, I think, than the news, but uh, the the regulations or the... the, um, Something that the Star News, the local Star News, local paper Star News reported this, and I'll just read this quote uh, from Raleigh, that Shamor, which is a big um, chemical company that makes Teflon, I believe, um, and is associated with the DuPont company, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, Shamor, which has a big presence in North Carolina, would have to analyze Gen X, which is a chemical used in baking Teflon, and other chemicals in the Cape Fear River sediment and measure the chemical levels at raw water intakes according to a revised consent order between the chemical giant, the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality, and the Cape Fear River Watch. Talk about that. I mean, that's like that. There's your triple whammy. So, first, you have, you have all of the animal waste. 
then you have the coal ash dumping, and then you have the illegal dumping from these chemical companies. So, I mean, at this point, the fact that North Carolina isn't just exploding with cancer and other related diseases is, is kind of mind-boggling. Like, what... Well. Yeah, you what know, North you Carolina. Public health. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say, what kind of impacts on public health are you seeing, if any, from all of this pollution? Well, there there are serious impacts to public health from the hog waste getting in the waters and in the air. We know that there are a number of studies that have been done on that. So that's mm. a given. Yep. And that includes poultry waste as well. Yep. We know that there are serious health consequences associated with the coal ash. That yep. is also a given. With this, uh, these um, uh, petrofluoride uh, uh, ethers that are being discharged from Chimmer's plant, there's a little bit of a question as to just how much health consequences are associated with that. There are two people that I would recommend you get on your show. One of them is Dr. Larry Cahoon, okay. C-A-H-O-O-N, and uh, Kemp Burdett, Dr. Le- uh, uh uh, Cahoon is associated with UNC Wilmington, and he's done a lot of the testings for this chemical. Uh-huh. And he found it in his drinking water a couple yeah. of weeks before it was even announced by the state. Wow! And he can address some of the the uh, health consequences with okay. it. But then Kemp Burdett is also the Cape Fear Riverkeeper, and he works with Dr. Cahoon. And it was the Cape Fear Riverkeeper program that entered into the consent decree. Right. So there's an awful lot of information that would take up a whole segment of your show just talking about <laughs> that particular uh, discharge from that plant. Right. Okay, uh, well, well, we'll move on then in that case because I know that your primary focus has been around the poultry and hog uh, industries. And, and so I wanted to ask you about the photographs that you sent me, um, which showed these you know, enormous – I mean, I can't even calculate how many tons. That was just one – was that one farm that you sent me pictures of or No, multiple? you have two separate farms, but I okay. have 27 of them wow. that are uh, on our radar right now that I'm following and reporting to the state. But I just – sent you pictures of two, right. um, both in the Noose River watershed. Um, the ground looks very swampy there. It and there is. There's a lot both, of standing water in between these enormous, and I'm telling you folks, enormous piles, like hundreds of yards long, it looks like. How many tons of waste do you think that represents, Rick? Uh, well, um, I don't know how many chickens there are in those two facilities. We have uh-huh. asked that question. Right. Uh, but in North Carolina, that information is proprietary, and the state rarely ever shares any of that information with us. But looking at those piles of waste, which are two-and-a-half football fields long, yeah. and I encourage people, if you put them up on I'm your website, put them on my, I'll put them on my radio page, absolutely, and I'll put them on but, my Facebook page. But the Trent River runs right behind that first site uh-huh. where you see uh, the, it's the bigger of the two sites right. where you see it's two and a half football fields with row after row, a row of, of chicken waste containing what we believe are the bodies of dead, decaying chickens, oh, nice. along with some litter and sawdust and other materials that are composting. But the Trent River is just a matter of feet away. And yes. in some of the pictures that we have, the floodwaters from the Trent River and not from the hurricane, but just from these rains we've been having mm. recently, because all those pictures are very recent. Right. The floodwaters are coming right up to the piles, very close. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then on the other one, the, the, the second site, the uh, Tuckahoe Creek runs right adjacent to that field, and we actually have photographs of the water running from the waste piles into a ditch 
that goes right to Tuckahoe Creek, which also enters into the Trent River. Wow. But here's the real problem with these waste piles. Yeah. They, the industry first said, when after the hurricane, we were going to compost these dead chickens inside the confinement buildings. I'm not seeing that. Right. I'm seeing them composted out in the environment, exposed right. to the elements. There's also a regulation in North Carolina that says you can't leave piles of chicken litter uncovered for more than 15 days. They're right. supposed to put a cover over them to keep the rain from going in them and washing into the groundwater into the local adjacent waters. Well, as you see these photos, they're not covered. No. And they haven't been covered since they've been first put there, likely right after Hurricane Florence. Wow. The other thing is taxpayers pay for manure storage sheds to be built on many of these chicken facilities. No way. But I did not yes, know that. Yes, they do. But what you find under these these manure sheds are the tractors and uh, instead of the waste. And on that one picture or group of pictures that I sent on that first facility, yeah. you'll actually see two huge storage sheds without any waste that I can see stored in there. But tractors are in there instead to keep them out of the weather. Oh, my God. So instead of covering them as they should, instead of composting them inside the confinement buildings as they said they would, or at least putting as much as they could in the storage shed, that was all too hard. They simply put it out in nature, under the elements, and, and we can't even get to it under the law to sample because we'd be trespassing. So I, we turned it into the state. And we turned it into state water quality people. But they, in turn, said, no, this isn't our problem. And they gave it to the Department of Agriculture to go look at. Well, you know the Department of Agriculture in North Carolina is never going to find anything wrong on any farm. They just aren't going to do it. So I have very little hope that all these work we're doing to expose this chicken litter waste running in our rivers and streams is going to come to zero. I hope that's not true, Rick. Let me ask you this. What about the local population? Are they not concerned about the fact that uh, the government, governor is issuing, you know, drinking water, uh, you know, don't drink the water, don't take showers, or any of the other measures that presumably are being taken to protect people from this water pollution issue? I mean, is there no pushback from your local populations? They're screaming bloody murder. Uh-huh. But the problem we have is that the legislature in North Carolina is owned and operated by the polluters. Yeah. They give money to these people in such amounts that they own them, and they get anything they want in terms of legislation. We have a good governor, but yeah. if the governor has vetoed some of these, these hor- horrific, terrible bills that they've sent through, <laughs> and they just override his veto. Oh, Last man. week, I went to a hearing in Kenansville. Uh, it was a public hearing because the permits for both poultry and swine are being renewed after five. Every five years they get renewed. And we're speaking about what ought to be in there to help control this pollution. Yeah. Normally, it is so overloaded with hog producers and poultry producers that there are only a few, two, three, ten environmentalists in there giving their side of, of the view. Right. But in this last hearing, there were 13 producers, hog producers and poultry producers that spoke, and almost 30 environmentalists. And the audience was made up of people from not just environmentalists, but people who lived in the community that were screaming that they wanted relief. They can't yeah. live under these conditions. Right, right. 
But I'm telling you, nothing will ever come out of our General Assembly in North Carolina to protect the people, only the industry, because the industry owns our legislators. That is a shocking, you know, I mean, not surprising, but shocking. And on that note, we're going to take a short break for a sponsor drop. um, And we will be right back with Rick Dove from the Waterkeeper Alliance. Uh, We're talking about North Carolina in the wake of Hurricane Florence. So stay tuned for more. This episode has been brought to you by Worldwide Soba, a Japanese noodle production company. Founded by Shuichi Kotani, Worldwide Soba offers noodle consulting services in addition to supplying a variety of tools for wannabe noodle makers. Want to take a class? Worldwide Soba has it. Need a traditional Japanese soba knife? Worldwide Soba has that too. To learn more, visit worldwide-soba.com. you <laughs> i do loves me some soba thank you very much to our new sponsor worldwide soba that's great um so we're talking to rick dove he is the um senior advisor to the waterkeeper alliance in uh in the noose river area of north carolina we're talking about the aftermath of hurricane florence and the fact that the state legislature appears to be owned by industry this is not an uncommon thing in the united states um <laughs> strangely it's amazing but that's what's happened but i to go back to that question just for a second and then i want to move on a little bit but um what about sort of new like when when we had the big new wave of of you know congressional elections that brought in a a democratic uh house of representatives what happened in north carolina rick did you not see any relief uh in that in your state elections a little bit. Um, the Republican Party, and let me first say that even when the Democrats controlled the legislature in North Carolina, we had these same problems. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but they weren't saying. overriding the governor's vetoes. Um, since this Republican uh, uh, legislature has come into being was about six, eight years ago, they've been passing laws that are just terrible and then overriding the governor's veto. This last election took their uh, veto-proof um, uh, or, or their veto power away from them. I mean, they could still veto. I mean, the governor can veto, but the legislator doesn't have legislature doesn't have the votes to override the vetoes anymore. So that's a little bit of a break. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, that doesn't change all the bad stuff that's happened in the last three or four years. No, uh, it doesn't. Regarding legislation, and it comes back to this idea of what you proposed um, right after Hurricane Matthew, which was what three years ago. Um, moving, you know, a lot of these uh, hog and poultry operations to higher ground. So what would that mean, though, to the people who are actually, you know, the contract farmers who are working within that industry? I mean, that wouldn't be so great for them. Um, No, um, you know, and and I'm glad you asked that question because I want to correct something I I said earlier. You know, after since after Hurricane Floyd and Dennis, the state put a lot of money into buying out facilities in the floodplain, oh. and some actually got bought out, but not all. They just did, they didn't want to get bought out. It was uh-huh. a volunteer program. But there's been no money since 2007 to do any more buyouts. 
But now um, North Carolina has come up with another $5 million, which is a drop in the bucket for what they have to pay to, yes. to get these facilities shut down or moved. But there is now a little money coming in to, to help with that. And I, I wanted to correct what I said earlier. Right. But the other thing is the, the growers in North Carolina are almost victims. They, they are victims like everybody else. I consider them victims, absolutely. They were told to put in this lagoon and spray field. They were told it was okay to put it in, in the right. floodplain. And they followed the regulations of the state, at least to the extent that they developed their facility. Now they've invested. They had to pay for all that. The industry yes. didn't pay for that. They right. had to. Now we have new technologies to replace lagoons and spray fields, but the industry refuses to pay for it. And right. the growers themselves, the producers, who who are who own the land and the buildings and the debt that goes with right. raising these animals, they can't afford to make the switch. Of course not. So we're stuck with a Chinese corporation who owns almost all the hogs in North Carolina, including Smithfield Foods. They own the whole Smithfield Foods. Yes. That you know they're not going to spend the money to make the transition. So everybody in North Carolina is on the hit, uh, both the people who live here, the rivers and streams, and the producers themselves. Yes, that's right, because they're drinking that water too. And I know for a fact that they're you know they're uh, somebody who goes into farming, uh, you know, growing hogs or chickens for for a big corporation isn't doing it. Uh, so that they can pollute the rivers and streams. I understand that, and I hope everybody else does, because I think there's a lot of finger-pointing at the people who are involved with this industry um, who don't recognize that the enormous costs uh, required to take care of animal waste simply is not shouldered by the industry that is making billions of dollars off of these people. I mean, they are making bank, and these guys are stuck uh, with you know lower and lower prices thanks to consolidation, and uh, and they're expected to manage these literally the equivalent of a small city's worth of of you know animal waste with no treatment. There's no waste treatment program, right? That's correct. And and you know what's happened is the industry has used this outhouse system, which is nothing mm -hmm. but a hole in the ground, yeah. dirt, a hole in in the ground filled full of this feces and urine. And when it fills up from the hogs defecating in the barns and flushing it out, then they dump it on the fields. Right. Well, if you have people, you can have a system similar to that on a smaller scale if you spread it out all over the country. Like it used to be with traditional farmers where they could use small lots of this stuff as fertilizer. Sure. But when you move either people or animals like pigs into a city environment, you can't bring the outhouse with you. Right. You've got to put in an expensive <laughs> wastewater treatment plant. Yes. And that's what the industry refuses to do. Right. It's common sense. It's not a matter of science. It's just pure common sense. It is pure common sense, and it would go a long way towards mitigating greenhouse gases because, of course, the VOCs that come off of those lagoons and off those piles of poultry, poultry litter are part of, you know, the problem with animal agriculture. And, yeah. you know, if they if they were able to regulate that and if, if those greenhouse gases were captured or baffled or purified or any of the air scrubbers or, you know, there's all kinds of methods to deal with this stuff and they just don't do it. So it's 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 really down to forcing corporations uh, to take the uh, responsibility for for this type of agriculture if they want to continue it. And I don't see that happening. <laughs> well, you <laughs> know, uh, and I'll, I'll make this quick, but. Um, animal agriculture as we know it today, including the industrial production, 
may be a thing of the past in the next 20 years. They're already able to grow meat in the lab by just uh, giving nutrients to cells and reproducing the cells in the lab. If that turns out to be safe, tasty, and inexpensive, and it hits the marketplace, it will put the animal industry out of business because there's no reason to go through all the expense to grow the plants and then take the plants and go through all the expense to feed the animals with the plants to have meat if you can grow it in a lab. So, you know, this is either going to get solved by Mother Nature giving us a consequence that we have to deal with, which, which... requires that these facilities shut down, that could happen, or that the marketplace itself is going to turn around and find a solution where we don't have to raise animals anymore. So I I do believe a solution is coming. I just hope it happens in my lifetime, but at my age, it probably won't. Don't say that, Rick. You're going to live forever. You have to, because you have to keep doing this work. Nobody else well, is I do doing so it. much enjoy talking on your show and talking <laughs> and, and having well, th- your audience here. Thank and, and you. Please feel free to give them uh, my uh, email address, rdove2017 at gmail.com, and I'd be happy to answer any questions they have, including from producers across, you know, in your listening audience that that think that some of the things I'm saying are wrong. I'd be happy to, 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 to I think it's important to engage people who are actually doing this work rather than just speaking to, uh, you know, our little bubble of environmental activists or whatever, or, you know, non-meat-eating people. I'm, I'm a meat-eater. I like the industry. I want it to clean up. I want it to reduce its scale. I want it to be, because I think there are some benefits. And otherwise, what are we going to do? We're going to stop growing cows and pigs and chickens? Like we're not going to have them anymore because if you don't eat them, then then nobody's going to grow them and then they go extinct. So is that what we want? You know, it's 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 not so easy to decide which way this should go. But I do think that there is some kind of a middle ground where uh, animals, you know, just as they used to be on a farm, uh, be, can be part of a mixed use model where they actually add nutrients to the soil, uh, become a carbon sink, and and so forth. And I think that right. that's you know that's where we want to go, at least in the foreseeable future. You know, fifty years from now or 100 years from now, you're right. Maybe we won't even have the cropland to feed these things. As Nevertheless, n- never mind our own selves. But um, I, do, I do think that there is a middle ground. I think the industry has to take responsibility for the pollution that it creates and has to start paying for it. And I think that's, that's only going to happen through legislation, and that's only going to happen if we get rid of Citizens United. Am I right, Rick? <laughs> oh, you're absolutely right about Citizens United. <laughs> you sure are. I mean, our... Our nope. politics in this country right now, it, boy, it's the uh, best word I can think of to describe it is bizarre. Yeah, I agree. Now, I just came back from Spain um, where I spent a month uh, trying to save money on my fuel bills because it cost me so much to heat my house in Rhode Island. So I was living in Spain. I rented an apartment and I connected with some activists who are pushing back against the growth of industrial hog farming uh, and dairying, but especially hog farming in Spain. Because, you know, in Spain, you know, the, re- the national religion is pig. I mean, everyone eats pork. You have to be a Hamanarian to live in Spain. There's no question about it. And everything, you know, they eat they eat pig every day, and every person eats at least one pig a year, at least that much, you know, in terms of pounds. So, um, but they are seeing this enormous uptick in uh, industrial-scale farming, largely at the behest of the Chinese, who uh, right now, as you probably know, are enduring a huge epidemic of some kind of, you know, swine fever, swine flu that's killing their... Their um, uh, herds of pigs, um, and also because they have such a tremendous demand for meat now, and that's why they bought Smithfield. <laughs> and um, 
so they're coming into Spain and they are contracting with the Spanish to build these big farms and basically engage in exactly the same disastrous model that we have here. So it was really interesting to talk to these groups, these NGOs like Compassion and World Farming and with um, Food and Water Watch Europe to talk about the methods and the strategies that they have for discouraging uh, the growth of this type of agriculture. And so that after that long-winded um, discussion on my part, is there such a thing happening in North Carolina? Do you see populations, you know, when they come into the state and they say, oh, we're going to build another hog farm, are there groups of people who are pushing back? Is there, well, are there editorials in the newspapers about it? You know, stuff well, like that. Well, we have a ban in North Carolina. You can't build a new hog farm in oh, North is that Carolina right? without, without putting in the new technology. So, ah, uh, so, so we've, got a, a, we've got a solution there. It's not going to get any worse. Uh, but with the poultry industry, that's not true. They're totally, mm. almost totally unregulated in North Carolina, and wow. they're, they can develop anywhere but just getting a building permit. They don't need anything else. Just go build the barns and get the chickens, and you're done. Oh, my Lord. And the regulations are so few with regard to poultry that it's, uh, it's ridiculous. But um, North Carolina is a good example uh, for others to look at for reasons why you do not want to do this. So here's what I would recommend <laughs> yes. to anybody in any state or, or the population of any state or foreign country. If, if you're thinking about doing that, you come to North Carolina, you yeah. get in an airplane with me, and let me fly you across eastern North Carolina. Right. And then you talk to the people here. And if you pay attention, you'll go back home and you'll say, we're not going to do that here. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the governor of South Carolina, when this industry uh, exploded in North Carolina, they tried to go to South Carolina, and the governor made an official statement. He said, we've seen the mess you've made of North Carolina. You're not coming here. Wow. So if you want, if you want to see what, what you don't want, <laughs> you come to North Carolina and we'll show you. Yeah, really. Well, Rick, I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, thank you so much. Now you, is your moment to share shamelessly promote yourself. So first of all, tell people about the Waterkeeper Alliance uh, website. How can people stay on top of what's going on at the Noose River and the Cape Fear? We're going to do an, and send me that information about your colleague on the Cape Fear uh, Riverkeeper. I, I sure will. And, I, I and will. also, and, do you uh, write a blog? I mean, how do people, you gave your, give your email address again, you know, all of that stuff. My email address is rdove2017 at gmail.com. Uh, they can also uh, go on the waterkeeper.org website. That's waterkeeper.org. And there's a whole section in there on, well, first of all, there's a section on river keepers across the, the world because we're, we're worldwide. Yeah. Um, and there's also uh, information on river keepers in your area and what rivers they're on. Mm-hmm. And they can access every one of those programs and see what they're about. And then there's a special section on all the CAFO problems here in North Carolina. And um, uh, so that uh, we have a tremendous campaign here. So I encourage everybody to go to that waterkeeper.org website and uh, go to the CAFO section in there in, uh, in North Carolina, and you'll be amazed at the information you'll find. Well, I'm look. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that right now. No, <laughs> I'm actually gonna do a bunch of programs um, around. Uh, pushing back. I was so inspired by these people in Spain who are working so hard to, um, you know, definitely take that lesson of North Carolina to heart um, I, that I thought I would try to sort of drum up a bunch of other people around the country in hog farm country, especially uh, like Missouri and Iowa, uh, to see, you know, how communities are responding to the expansion of the industries into their communities.
communities. So, um, you know, stay tuned for that, folks. That's that's coming up this uh, in the next few weeks. I'm going to be queuing up a bunch of people to talk about that, and I'll get I'll get that Cape Fear River Riverkeeper on as well. Um, Rick, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. you're going to come back. I hope, uh, and yeah, we'll find more you. to it's talk about. It's always a pleasure. I'll be happy to come back. Likewise, anytime. really appreciate your time. And thanks to my sponsor. Uh, it's great to have somebody new on board here at Heritage Radio Network. And remember, folks, this is our tenth year. I've been doing this show for 10 years now. Not this particular show, but pretty close. I started out with Patrick Martins, our founder, uh, in March uh, of 20... Uh, March of 2009, I guess. And here I am, 10 years older. I'm still sitting in the same chair. So um, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for all your support. And remember to hit the donate button whenever the spirit moves you. Thanks for listening. See you next week, folks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.